Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. I'm joined, as always, by my good host, colleague, and friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. Ready to get started on this podcast. and wondering if we got any negative reviews for the fact that that podcast was so long on Tuesday. I didn't even contemplate it until we were done with it. It took literally, I think it took like 10 minutes for it to finish downloading from Zoom after we got off, which is like, that's a record for me. Um and I do a lot of long pods. So that was a, that was, there was a lot there, but that was a really good pod. I, I enjoyed that one. I'm psyched for this one too. We're continuing our player reviews titled The One. Who are we covering today? Today we have decided to lump in the grouping of young, maybe somewhat fringe bigs. Um, before people think that we just forgot Isaiah Jackson, we didn't forget him. We're going to put him on a later episode with Tyrese and Chris Duarte. So today we have Goga. Jalen O'Shea and Terry Taylor. Yeah, I'm very excited for this grouping. Uh, I told you before we get on here that I had a very fun hypothetical for you, partially spurred on by a Syracuse fan this morning. So I wanted to ask you if you had to choose between five O'Shea Brissettes in a lineup or five Terry Taylors in a lineup, which way do you go and why? This is a this isn't a fun question. I think it's a fun question. I want an even mix of both. No. <laughs> um I guess I would probably pick five. Well, that's so hard because they, they have such different skill sets. They're both opportunity scores in a way, but in very different ways. Like I feel like with Terry, I could still run some degree of offense and like he can make plays out of the middle of the floor. He can run handoffs better than O'Shea can, but I could probably just spread out with five O'Shea's there. I mean, he's not like an elite shooter, but the fact that he can hit spot up shots at a higher clip than what Terry can and can cut off of other people leads me to think, well, but Terry can probably guard more. This is a tough question. Mark. Right. It's awesome. I love this one. I think I'm picking five Terry Taylors after my longer thought, like the shooting is going to be problematic. And I readily admit that, but I feel like I could at least run handoffs. Terry can do a little bit with fake handoffs. He can do stuff off the dribble bully ball. And I just, I trust him more on the glass. He can cut. I don't think he's quite as good of a cutter as O'Shea, but um, I also just trust his core strength better and it would depend on the opponent. I guess if I'm playing a small opponent, I would lean toward five O'Shea's, but if there's any degree of size out there, I would go with five Terry's. See, I would just go five O'Shea's strictly for the chaos factor. Uh, I, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunity here to just play some really wild fun basketball. You can't go wrong with either. I think I'm in the same camp as you. I'd rather just have like two of one or three and three of the other. Um, because they're such a, like, I don't know, they, they kind of mask some of one another's flaws outside of, you know, like not being able to be primary options, but, um, the other thing you get with O'Shea though, too, is like, he's going to constantly be setting flares and pins for the other O'Shea's. 
exactly. to be opening things up. Like it's it's a very complex question. I would have to give that real thought. This is really we could have an entire podcast on this at some point for being completely honest. But um, yeah, who do you want to get started with? Today? I guess I should get started. Do you want me to start with Terry or O'Shea today? Let's just go alphabetically. I'm trying to think. So O'Shea, yeah, it would be O'Shea. <laughs> um, I know, I know English. I promise. Uh, so O'Shea Brissett, he had himself a season this year. He established himself a lot more. You want to hear a really interesting fun fact, and it it makes sense when you think about it. But he's Is played it- more minutes. Oh, sorry, I didn't ask it if, if you actually wanted to hear the fun fact, but it's happening anyways. Uh, He's played more minutes this season than he did in any of his seasons at Syracuse or any of his, you know, if you, even if you combine his prior two seasons. So fun fact, he's really established himself, which has been awesome to see. Um, <laughs> I'll let you weigh in. Sorry, that was, I, I totally jumped the gun on that one. Oh, I was going to say, did you know the uh, another fun fact that uh, he led the Pacers in every statistical category? Yes. Uh, how could I not forget? That is an actual fun fact. Like that is an actually great fact. And one that I am never going to forget, frankly. It's a great fact. But at the same time, when you look at the numbers, like it just says so much about this season because (laughs) very jarring. it says so much about this season because you had to qualify to play in enough games. And then when you look at it, it's like, what did he lead in assists with like 1.3 per game? Yeah. Um, not great. (laughs) I think he had, yeah, he had 1.1 assists per game. Yeah. Damn. Uh, this is not O'Shea slander. This is Pacer slander. Um, okay. So my number. Wait, wait, wait. What's your one play? Oh, yes. One play. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. My one play is one of the most, I think the most recent matchup against the Detroit Pistons um, in April. And. O'Shea is in the far corner. Uh, Sad- Sadiq Bay rotates as the low man. Buddy Heald is on the opposite side in the slot with the ball. Ijax is fronted in the post by Killian Hayes. As soon as Sadiq Bay sinks off of O'Shea, O'Shea cuts. But he also, like, the angle he cuts deserves appreciation. Like, there are guys who, like, cut and it just, like, I don't know. It's not like the most perfect angle. It, it, it's the small things with watching O'Shea. I, we, he's really made me focus on things that, that, uh, seemed very minute this year because what else are we going to focus on? Um, but yeah, he flashes to the middle of the paint, gets the ball from Buddy. Killian Hayes looks right at him, takes a step up because he's, well, you shouldn't take the step up actually, but he does. Um, and then O'Shea immediately hits Ijax with the bounce pass because Ijax uh, flows out of his seal. Also credit to Ijax here for actually moving, huge part just moving when you don't have the ball. Um, and then he gets a wide open dunk and it sounds like such a simple thing, but the, just the quickness with, with, with which O'Shea does all of these little mini things impromptu, like, like you mentioned, like the 1.1 assist per game is, it's not like, ideally that's not who's leading your, your team in total assists on the season, but it happens sometimes. Um, but he's a really good passer for his role. He does everything so quickly. I all like I contemplate breaking down which play I wanted this to be was very difficult, Caitlin. Let me tell you. Um, I like this one just because it encapsulates so many of the things that he can do that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, point out right away. Um, like obviously I could have gone for some of the impromptu flare screens and uh like one of the really fun dunks he's had, but um 
I just felt like this this was a good encapsulation. Like even if he does get helped off of where um, he is left alone, he makes himself present and, and part of the offense. And in some ways, I feel like he's almost better attributed to be. Um, I'm so bad at saying attributed. He's almost better um, optimized playing on a better team in some ways. Not that he was bad this year, but I just mean like he does all of like the little winning things that I think are really important for a team that's trying to be better. Um, so yeah, that's the play that I went with. Yeah. I mean, he's very resourceful and yeah. he cuts, like you're saying in a way where he's not spoiling spacing. Um, because there there's people who cut, but if you don't time it right, then mm-hmm. you're just putting another body into the lane. And he rarely does that. He knows, you know, if somebody's, driving from the wing that he should cut from the baseline. If they're cutting from the baseline, he should cut from the 45 and not to get in too soon. So that he brings defenders in with him or, you know, he'll slip flare screens a lot to against the switch so that he can get to the basket and relieve that or provide an outlet for Tyrese to make a pass. Um, yeah. I mean, it just, you can always find stuff. Like I said, he's like, I don't know if anybody on the roster is better at doing the flare pins on the weak side to make sure that the help defenders are being occupied in some way, shape or form, or just creating, you know, a place to screen secondary help so that you then can get a corner three out of it. Um, So, and and I like that you bring up that he passed it because a lot of times when he's in the corner, you'll see, you know, Tyrese likes to make that extra pass to the corner. If you throw it to O'Shea, he can put the ball on the floor there and, and he will. Like he'll make an extra pass to Ajax under the basket. That happened when they were up in Detroit, as well as when they played the play that I remember that you're talking about when they Detroit was here in Indy. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I truly think he's a film room all star. I probably will write something about it over the summer, just on all the different ways that um, he finds cracks on both ends of the floor because he does that as well defensively in different types of ways. So I like your pick for the clip. I appreciate that. Uh, My number has been really hard to get down because he has so many numbers that are interesting. Um, But I'm going to go with 46.5. You know what that is? I do not. I I figured you were going to pick what uh, his field goal percentage was on drives or his. I contemplated that, but I thought that was uh, I thought that was uh, low hanging fruit. So I went with a different one. This is his two point percentage. Um, Do you know what his two point percentage was last year? I'm guessing it was almost negligible because he barely took any two point shots unless it was cuts. Well, yeah. Um, but <laughs> for the sake of the exercise, it was 54.8 last year on almost the same amount of attempts per game. Um, he had took three and a half twos last year for this year. Um, obviously, like you mentioned, I think a lot of that is spurred on by drives, which we can get into. Um, but yeah, what are you, where are you at with that? I know that's a, that's a whole thing to dig into, but I think that's, uh, as we've talked about many times, that is a lot of what is currently holding him back uh, yeah. as a player. Yeah, I mean, if you break it down, because I figured that you would go in one of those few directions with your number or your over-under, and his rim field goal percentage is down from 69 to 55. And in part, a lot of that is he's had an increased volume of drives. He doesn't really have an in-between game. But what we were just saying about the cuts, it's it's curious because his efficiency on cuts has dropped quite a bit as well. Like in 2021, he scored 1.609 points per possession on cuts. And this year that dropped to 1.062, which that sounds like, oh, that's good because that's over one. But cuts are a very typically high efficiency play type. 
So that's that's not grading out particularly well, even though the actual motion that he's making and sometimes that he does connect other people with the cuts that he's making. He didn't finish as well when he got to the basket. And then when you look at the drives, he shot. I mean, it, it's good that his volume's up because that means that he did see at least some more closeouts and was willing to put the ball on the floor because that really just wasn't a reality for him. And a little bit of time last season when he was surging toward the back end, but you know, he went drives from 1.8 a year ago to 3.3, but his field goal percentage on those this year was only 38%. Um, and when you just break it down to layups, it's like in the twenties. Yeah. Um, not great. Yeah. And so, like I said, in anticipation that you're going to go down this angle, I watched all of the layups yesterday and all of the finishes. And I just want to know, like, from you, I know we've talked about this on prior pods, but to be honest, like, in the times where you've brought it up, like, we both know that this is a definite improvement area and something that he's going to need to get better at. But I never really took the time to sit and look and see, like, what exactly is going on here? So as you prepared for this, like, what exactly do you think is going on here? Yeah, well, uh, just to, to open this up more, um, this plays right in my over-under too, because my over-under is 45, which is percentage on drives next year. Mm-hmm. Um, because it like when you see like 38, it it obviously does not look good. It does not sound good. But just to put it in perspective, like among players who have taken at least one and a half field goal attempts on drives per game this year, that's the ninth worst in the NBA. Like that's, that's very rough. And especially when you factor in size, like he's by far, I think him and precious that are the only players who are taller than like six foot five that are on this list right now. Um, so my thing was, do you think you can get to 45 next year? And I guess we can dive into that right now. To me, I think the issue is just when he picks up the ball. Um, and when he starts trying to finish, like the yes. the play that I almost pointed out was an, from another Piston game in March where he had like a, it wasn't a Euro, but like it was a plant step finish. But he finally waited to bring the ball up until after he had made the plant step. Um, I think a lot of the problem with him right now is he'll like start trying to do stuff uh, with preparing to finish before he's even done getting to the rim. And I think that he tries to make adjustments uh after he hits contact or after he, you know, after he realized like, Hey, this first thing is not going to work. And that's just a big issue for him right now. Like it feels so uh, rushed is the wrong way to put it, but it just feels like he's trying to solve a Rubik's cube when he's trying to finish the rim. Um, and I think that to me right now, that's the biggest area of improvement is just like, it's not even about having counters. It's just about having something that you like hit timing when he's going to start doing his start, his finish, I think is the way I'd put it. Right. That's what I was going to say, that that was the main thing. There was about three things that I felt popped up pretty consistently when I watched it all back, mainly footwork that he's committing too early and sometimes off of both feet before he's really created the advantage and forced the defender. Like I'm saying to commit when he gets into the paint, like there was one in Phoenix that showed up pretty immensely where he was on the left side of the floor, put the ball down with his right and Biombo was still off of him and he was already trying to, get into his shot. And like you're saying, and then it leads to an adjustment because he's too far away from the rim. And this is what I was getting ready to ask you. How many layups actual, like not what they're going to track as a layup, but an actual layup. Do you think that he took? Uh, what are we classifying as a layup? I guess is my question. 
reaching out with one hand and taking a layup. Oh, it's probably it's, less than 20 this year. Yeah, like, I mean, they classified it as, like, 50, but when you watch those, like, this this man is very rarely taking a layup. Like, it's, it's a typically... Of, like, almost, it's, it's like a floater almost at times. It's like a hanging bank shot a yeah. lot of the time. Like, it's almost always a jump shot because he gets there and he hasn't actually cleared the defense so then he's having to adjust in midair with like i'm saying borderline a jump shot and that's where he gets a lot of the like all glass finishes and i was gonna say the next thing that pops up is because he does commit too early like that and a lot of times we'll jump off of both feet instead of going off of one he's already rough on the left hand layups like he shot 31 percent um driving left and finishing with his left so that's already a problem. And he just gets like no vertical level elevation, very little vertical pop because he's taking off so early and then having to reach out that when it is a left-handed layup, it's just not going to happen. And then I would say that the third thing that showed up the most is that sometimes it's just going way too fast. Yeah. He wants to get in there and, and finish really quickly instead of kind of taking his time in certain aspects where he would. So I think, over the summer, a lot of it comes down to footwork. Cause I don't think he's going to have to do as much of the midair adjusting and have so many of like, it's kind of like what we talk about with TJ McConnell, only not like TJ McConnell does not have a floater. Like he takes yeah. everything as a jump shot, even if he's two feet from the rim, but that works for him, especially on the baseline. And he's perfected that little shot in O'Shea's case. Like he can be, first of all, he'll be taking off like two feet outside of the restricted area at times. So that when he gets there and the defender meets him, which he hasn't beat the defender, he's having to adjust. And then, like I'm saying, it's like a hanging bank shot. So um, I think if he works on the footwork over the summer, there's a chance that he can improve that rate. And I want to believe that I trust him to do that because when you look at other things that he's done so far in his career, like he shot the three in the corner this year pretty well. And at Syracuse, he really wasn't a three-point shooter. Um, Last year, he basically never put the ball on the floor. Like that wasn't a real thing. <laughs> he barely took any mid-range shots a year ago. He barely put the ball. Like I'm saying, if he got to the rim, it was typically off a cut, which is why I think his rim field goal percentage was so much higher because that was really the only shots he was taking predominantly off of Sabonis. And, you know, now he actually is comfortable at least putting the ball on the floor and trying to get to the basket. So he seems like a guy who spends his summers and really wants to stay in the NBA and is going to put in that work. So I want to lean that he can at least get to 45 or better, but it certainly isn't good at this current moment. Yeah. Um, you want to know something really funny, actually, that I was thinking about earlier uh, before we hopped in. Um, our first pod that we did in Summer League, we talked about one of the first things we talked about was like, holy shit, O'Shea is like driving the basketball because we talked about that, you know, a, a bunch last year in the 21 games he did play. Like, you know, he's awesome as a cutter the, the the shooting is great but what happens when he gets run off the line um and he started flashing that a ton in summer league like the driving it, it was like night and day and he didn't finish well and we were just kind of like you know it's a small sample size <laughs> uh he might have finished better at summer league than he did on drives this actual year i'd have to like i mean he was some... getting fouled all the time yeah, in summer yeah. league so at least there was that exactly and i think to me that's why i'm interested in the 45 because he still is capable of getting fouled, but I also feel like as the year went on, I have to look at it, but it feels like he got fouled less just because uh, it felt like he could, he was, instead of seeking the contact more, he was doing more of trying to, to make the finish. But again, I'd have to well, go back and. Oh, and the ahead. other problem was his free throw percentage. Yeah. I mean, he shot below 70% from the free throw line. I almost use that as a number. <laughs> How worried are you about that? 
I mean, it's weird because, like I said, like I know that, and Rick Carlisle has a strong reputation for working with people's mechanics on their shots going back from when he was Dallas. And I know that he worked with several people this season on it. And I know that they had talked about working on his three-point release, which seemed to have some decent results. But then when you would watch him at the free throw line, his free throw release looked very different than his um, three-point, like his when he shoots the ball from three. So I don't know like if he never made the same adjustment to his um, shooting form from the free throw line as he did from what they worked on him out to three or what exactly happened. But um, I mean, it, it was, he never even really had a solid month from the free throw line. It was pretty consistently um, 60 seventies. And I think I don't have the number in front of me cause I didn't do O'Shea, but I think he finished what 69% from the line. Yeah. 69 and a half. Yeah. I will say he did finish on at least a pretty good note, like from, uh, from February onwards to 27 games. So it's a decent sample size. He finished about 73.8% at the, at the free throw line on almost four attempts per game. So it did uptick a little bit, but still, even then, like that's, if you remove like the first two weeks of February, then it kind of those dies a little bit again. So it's uh yeah, it, it's definitely interesting. And I'm, I'm very excited to see what it looks like for him next year because um, I think we're starting to get to the phase where normally once you get to, especially a guy who's not as high volume, you know, once you start hitting your three or four, I feel like you're going to get a pretty good idea of what this guy is as a shooter, um, both from the line and just in general. So I'm interested to see what that looks like. But as for the over under, I'm going to take the over and I could be wrong on this, but just for what you laid out, I'm there. Like he's made a lot of improvements just from since we first saw him with Fort Wayne. Um, and especially like, I mean, watching who he was in Toronto compared to who he is now is kind of insane. Like the the rate of improvement that he has made to become the player he is now is pretty astounding to me. Um, so I just kind of buy it. And like, I don't want to say that it's something easy to develop. I, I don't, but considering the other things that he has developed, this feels like an easier thing to, to work on. Um, without necessarily having in-game reps, you know, like I, I'm, I imagine he's not going to play at summer league. Uh, I would be pretty surprised. Um, but as for like, you know, actually like getting runs in the summer and whatnot, like I think this is stuff you can definitely rep out in the gym and start translating that to some of the things that you do, you know, once summer, summer, uh, summer runs and whatnot start. So I, I would bank on him being over 45% on drafts next year. You can crucify me if I'm wrong on our first uh, our first week podcast next year. You know what? I think sometimes it's better to be overly optimistic than I pessimistic. not be optimistic it's, about O'Shea too. Especially after the past season that we just had. If we want to be um, a little bit extra in our belief in some of these players, I think that that's warranted. So um I don't blame you. And like I said, I think that, that the work ethic is there for him and that hopefully, you know, he can work with somebody over the summer that can work on some of those footwork things and whether he's going off one foot or two, whereas uh, when he's committing where the defender's at and that way he can, I mean, he, he can take layups. Um, I'd like to see more of those shots get converted to layups, despite what some of them are being classified as. Yeah, Um, no, I agree. Shall we move to Goga? Yes. In our alphabetical. Okay. I want to start out just before I even pick what play I'm picking because of what I'm going to pick, giving Goga some praise for how he ended up finishing out the season. Um, He finished in double figures in 10 of the last 11 games. 
after the trade, he shot 42% from three, which is a wild step up from what we had seen over the prior two seasons and at the beginning of the season, because pre-trade he was shooting um, 17% from three. And this is both roughly the same attempts. He was never taking more than two threes per game over either chunk of the season, but um, seemed like he got more comfortable from three-point range. And in part, I think that's just might be because probably two things. I mean, I'll let you weigh in on this later after I finish my little monologue here that pre-trade, he was only averaging 11 minutes per game. After the trade, he was averaging 20 minutes per game. And while there still were some games where like, you know, he played two minutes in Orlando or, you know, got yanked early in a few, the minutes were at least more consistent where maybe he could develop somewhat of a rhythm from three. I also think that in the past, there were times where he would speed up his release based on the contest. And over the back end of the season, it looked a little bit more like his shot looked the same regardless, which I think was um, a positive. If we're also looking at last year, I wrote an article about him and his screening, which I've done more than once, but looked at it more in depth and wrote about how under Nate Bjorkren, pretty much his entire shot diet, 63% of his shots last year under Bjorkren were either threes or putbacks. And this year that numbers dropped to below 50%, which typically a lot of people would think, well, you want all rim rim shots and threes. Yeah. I mean, from the standpoint of what shots are most valuable, I understand that argument, but in Goga's case, in terms of developing him holistically and getting him to be able to do other things, I think it's a good thing that that number dropped in part and mostly because his frequency as the role man went up and his efficiency as the role man went up. So this year he was below a point per possession as the role man last year, this year that was at 1.2 points per possession, which is good. His frequency was up close to 30%. I still don't think the screening's necessarily there. And I do want to make a slight aside to my aside here and say that um, on the last podcast, I made an error that I realized once we got off that one of the numbers I cited was actually incorrect. And that was my fault because I had PVP stats pulled up. And when I was talking about like the Tyrese effect and how much better Isaiah Jackson and Goga finished on twos, that's accurate. Their percentages did go up by at least six or 7% or so when Tyrese was on the court, but not as much as I had cited because the window I actually had up was percentage of twos that were assisted, which is what made it look more exaggerated. So to the listener, um, I apologize for that faux pas. It's the spirit of what I said, still accurate. So I'm guessing that some of his increase as the role man that I'm citing here has quite a bit to do with Tyrese because he's just such a good passer. And a lot of times he is going to draw Like we said on the prior podcast, he's going to draw two on the ball more so than what we've seen from Brogdon and Karis LeVert in the past, unless Karis is on a heater. And that made things easier for Goga. And I do think that the one thing that Goga has over the rest of the bigs we're going to talk about today and the current version of Isaiah Jackson and probably even Miles Turner is that he's very good or he, he showed me quite a bit making passes four on three over the back end of the season. Now opponents defenses weren't great in those situations, but in terms of finding like if he gets a pocket pass or if he gets an overhead pass out of a blitz, they almost always cut, cut the corner on the backside and he can make a bounce pass there. Sometimes he would make a pass fake to the wing and then make a bounce pass. I felt overall his reads in those situations were pretty good. So I just want to prove a point that I am giving Goga credit for some of what he did before I now share what the clip is. Um, and and <laughs> you can feel the clip, isn't it? 
Um, it is, and I it's also it, cheated. It, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I also yeah. cheated because it's not just one play. Wow. Um, you are fudging the entire integrity of the indie corners. I am. I am. It. It's it's a category of plays that makes a broader point. If if when people want to follow along and see what clips both of us picked, these will all be embedded in the post with the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, what I picked was I've titled this defense that requires him to make quick decisions on the move rather than winding up and sitting at a spot. So like, for instance, the first clip that I have, these are all going to be different types of coverages. So the first clip that I have, they're playing the Cavs, their most recent loss to Cleveland when eventually Darius Garland started really going at, at Jalen and switch situations and they had to double him. This is before Jalen came in. It was the last thing that Goga did on the court in this game because um, Brogdon automatically switches the Evan Mobley, Darius Garland pick and roll. And he's already going with Evan Mobley on the roll. And then Goga just inexplicably backs up with him. So it's a two on the roller advantage and there's no one defending Darius Garland. At which point when it's over, Malcolm Brogdon puts his hands up as if, what are you doing? And Rick Carlisle immediately takes a timeout. And then Goga did not play again in that game. And that might seem harsh, but when I wrote my post on one thing to watch for each player, that particular mistake reappears for him a lot this season where he ends up either falling for a tricky slip for somebody or he just doesn't communicate. And because a lot of times the Pacers would drop with him rather than switching out, the ball handler is expecting to switch. He doesn't communicate the coverage. And then, like I said, it's a two on the roller advantage. So that reappears a lot. Then when he is switching, I take us to Minnesota. He gets out on the ball on D'Angelo Russell, almost appears like he stubs his toe only he's really not. That's just how he looks on perimeter switches. And D'Angelo just blows right past him and kind of shows the frustration of, you know, watching Goga try to switch out in a lot of situations. Then we go to Phoenix and there have him in drop against Chris Paul. Biombo's the screener. Chris Paul is going to his right, to the right side of the rim. And Goga abandons Chris Paul. I don't know for what reason to go back to his man too early. And Chris Paul just gets a right-handed layup. That's with him in drop. And then in Chicago, back when the Pacers were still hedging, Goga steps out above the level of the screen to hedge against Zach Levine with Vucevic as the screener. And then he inexplicably just runs away and Zach Levine gets a wide open dunk. He releases to go back to Vucevic before he's actually contained the drive. That's a dunk. Um, and then in new Orleans, we, once again, I believe you and I already talked about this possession, but he's in drop and has already has his body all the way open so that when the ball handler gets there, his chest is actually facing the stanchion and the ball handler draws a foul on his back. And then he's basically leaping out to the perimeter. And lastly, we are in San Antonio and they're going to switch. Tyrese already is on Jacques Londale in the paint. Jalen's out guarding the guard on the perimeter. And Goga just comes up to Jalen's right, despite the fact that the screener is on his left and stands there leaving a wide open gap for the ball handler to drive and kick for three. So the reason I picked all those, and that's going to, it's probably going to sound somewhat harsh, but I have a point in what I picked to ask you, what type of defense can you consistently play that you feel confident that Goga is going to be able to develop and not have these types of loud mistakes? Ooh, um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
I would like to see, well, I, I think it's kind of drop or bust at this point. And not that, not that he's good in drop. Uh, and again, not to be unfair. Um, but I, cause even then I'm thinking about that, like his timing and drop is so rough. Um, but also like, like we talked about, like, it's, it's funny. Cause I've had people talk to me and they're like, he's so slow. And I'm like, it's not even that he's slow. He just doesn't see things happen defensively. Like, uh, would you agree with that? I feel like a lot of it's just kind of awareness. I think a lot of it at this point is continuing to um, not know where he should position yeah. his body. It's those angles that I just brought up. It's that he releases from his man too early to go back to the roller and then guys just glide to the basket. Um, I think generally if he has to make a quick decision, it's about like what you're saying. It's a quick decision on the move that's when it becomes a problem because like one really standout play, which I'm sure you remember the, the block he had on, I believe Jason Tatum when they were up in Boston, um, he, he made, he moved quickly to go get that. Like it was a recovery block. The problem was why it was necessary in the first place because of the initial mistake. It's kind of like those memes where, um, you know, where there's like a picture of a horse and the one end of the horse is drawn like <laughs> yes, expertly yeah, yeah. and shaded. And the other end looks like, you know, a kid's drawing that can be Goga on the same defensive possession. And yeah. that's what was the case in that Tatum instance. Like he fixed the mistake and got the block, but the reason the block was necessary had a lot to do with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I'm pretty much there with it's got to be it's got to be dropper like playing more even center field. I don't know about that. Um, like he would really have to improve his positioning and footwork on defense. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where I'm at right now. Just and not even that I think it's going to be good. I just think like I the switching anything with Kobe right now is a mistake. Um, and same thing with hedging. I. Yeah. I, are, is that where you're at, too? I just feel like he's lost a lot of the time. Cause I mean, I, I didn't even include, like, I just wanted to go with basic pick and roll coverages here. A lot of times, even when they were in zone, oh, um, yeah, we zone can all remember what happened with Nicholas Batum up in the Clippers game when they were trying to play one, three, one and Justin and Sabonis, Justin and Sabonis had to keep being like, where are you going? And that's, what's kind of disturbing that a lot of these clips, you can see teammates being like, you know, very in this case, Brogdon, yeah. very frustrated. Like it's it's very clear that Brogdon has justification here to be like, look, you got to communicate what the coverage is, and I think that's a part of the problem. Like I just don't think he he talks enough, and I'm not courtside to hear that. But given what some of the reactions are from people when they're the on-ball defender, it leads me to believe that he's not calling out the coverage call. Um, so, you know, I, I think from what everything I've seen. I almost like him at the level better than anything else. And it depends who's behind him. Um, Because when they were in Houston, they made that adjustment. And I think it might've in part been because of Jalen green and the way that he went off on those step backs against the Pacers in the prior matchup. I think, I don't remember how many threes he hit, but they might've wanted Goga up higher to try to get the ball out of his hands. And they went with that pretty consistently. And I thought Terry Taylor had a, pretty decent game rotating over and even if he had to cleanse you know coming over and tagging and making sure he was on the release when they would pass out of it but it just it forced Goga not to have as many of these types of decisions and so I go to my one number because it all plays into this and this comes from PBP stats I filtered it going back to 2020 I know these seasons this these numbers are supposed to be just about this season but I think for him and being in year three it's valid to look at it 
um, filtered his entire career just when he's on the court and then made it so he was the solo big. So no Miles, no Sabonis, no Isaiah Jackson, no Jalen Smith, and no Jakar Sampson from last year. And in those minutes, that's 1,231 minutes over three seasons. The Pacers have allowed 116.3 points per 100 possessions with Goga at solo five. And that's like the equivalent this season of the Portland Trailblazers who ranked 29th in the NBA in overall defensive rating. So to be fair, um, that number's worse just for this season. When he's out there with no Jalen, no Ajax, no Sabonis, no Turner, it was 122 was the defensive rating, obviously not near as many minutes, only 514 by comparison to what it was over three seasons. And if you look at Ajax at solo big, that was over 120. If you look at Jalen at solo big, that was over 120. Um, so it's not just exclusively this season, a Goga problem. And we can maybe discuss later on why like all of the solo minutes. Cause even like, if you look at miles, they gave up 117 with miles out there at solo without any of these other guys out there. And Sabonis, they gave up 114 with him out there, which miles is, is the lowest sample. No, Jalen's is the lowest sample size. Miles is right there. Cause he didn't play in as many games, but if we just throw this season aside and everything, you know, having people out because of COVID, having all the injuries, then playing only young guys at the end of the season that probably would have put more pressure on your backline defenders because their perimeter defense was what it was. Plus you're just, you're playing with guys who are still learning how to play defense together. The fact that it's this way over three seasons, I tend to give Goga less slack because even though he's had three different coaches, he's had a lot of obstacles to overcome in three years. I'm just not seeing a lot of progress from him on that end of the floor. Yeah. And I think that's totally fair and warranted, honestly. Like it's just, uh, it kind of is what it is at this point. Um, and I, I think I would change my answer to now because thinking about it more, it does make more sense for him to be at the level. Like, I, I think that's one thing like you can at least say like, okay, if you can just iron out your footwork and not foul the shit out of people, if you're there and force them to pick up their dribble and make a pass. And then you can at least hopefully rely on backline rotations. I think that makes it more so because I, I didn't think about it. You know, if he's in, the, if he's playing drop, he has to do so much more in terms of actually communicating and, and calling things out and making decisions. So yeah, it would make more sense for him to play at the level. Um, then another interesting thing to bring up in this conversation is the Pacers as a whole. And I know that you, you brought this up. I don't remember if it was a monthly podcast or what, that like this team, we've said many times, like there's not a lot of physical things that the roster at the end of the season that you could name, but they were a good offensive rebounding team as a collective. After the trade, they ranked third in offensive rebounding rate. Um, we know what Terry Taylor can do in those situations. Jalen and Goga both got some offensive rebounds, but their opponent offensive rebounding rate, they ranked 25th after the trade deadline. So it was a very good thing. Like in some of those games, like you remember when they're up in Detroit, both teams, I forget how many offensive rebounds both teams combined for. It's like neither one could stop the other on, on the defensive glass. Yeah. Um, so I went and looked because I, I just wanted to know, like, without looking at the numbers, do you think that Goga is a reliable defensive rebounder? Oh, no, not at all. Um, the Mo Bamba play is just in my head. Um, constantly so no i i would say no right so i looked there's a site um if you go to nba shot charts formulation 
Um, they use defensive rebounding rate is RAPM, and that lets them look at basically it tells you. Um, sorry, I was looking at the numbers oh, to try to find it here. Like, if even if you're not the person that gets the rebound, does somebody else out on the floor get it for you? So, like, for instance, like Brooke Lopez has never really ranked up. Um, a lot of, he's had somewhat of a mediocre individual rebounding totals, but when Brooke Lopez is on the, on the floor, even if he doesn't grab the rebound, somebody else on his team likely will. So that means he's probably doing at least something to impact, um, what's happening on the glass. So I filtered this for all of the Pacers current, uh, front court members and Goga league wide ranks 438th in this metric. Um, not good. And that's, and Isaiah Jackson, it's 444th, but again, at least like you can point to the fact that he's a rookie. Um, he has a very slim frame. I'm sure that he'll work to add strength this summer and in the coming years. Um, but Goga being your backup center, having that as his defensive rebounding rate. I think he had like seven defensive rebounds in a game this year. I don't know what the high was, but it was rare to see him get a double rebound game unless he had several offensive rebounds. And so I'm just looking at this as a whole. And I do think that's why I wanted to bring this up and point out that I do think he made some progress offensively. It just leads me to question like where the Pacers can be at with him as a potential backup big. And I don't necessarily know where he fits in. I don't know if you want to riff off anything that you saw from him offensively before I go into the over under, which is just going to be a broader um, thing about his future. Well, the one thing I did want to hit that you made a really good point on earlier was just him getting more minutes, helping with him in his shot. Um, like I talked about this with some of our friends over at the Strickland um, for people who aren't aware, really awesome group of uh, fans and analysts who, who cover the Knicks. Um, and that's been a thing with uh, a, that I've seen with a lot of guys just in general that I think gets undersold. Like um, one of the best examples this year is Corey Kispert for the Wizards. He came in billed as a shooter um, and he really struggled earlier this year to hit shots. He was only playing about 10 to 12 minutes per game. He wasn't getting a ton of attempts up. And lo and behold, when he starts playing 20 plus minutes per game and he's able to get off four or five attempts, his shots there. And um, I do think part of it with Goga was definitely mental. Like you could tell, like there were times where he didn't want to shoot a shot, but also like it was tough because if you missed a shot, he was getting pulled sometimes. Um, and if you don't have the ability to establish your rhythm and find your um, find where you're at in a game, like there, it, it just it is very hard to be a uh, a bench player who who relies on rhythm at times is, is, is kind of the point that I'm trying or a low minute bench player I should say like it's just very difficult and I think we've seen this play out with a lot of guys it's so difficult to find um any kind of rhythm without having the time that you need to establish it so I do think like you mentioned that was really uh, a huge thing for Goga but then again when, when we're talking about the defense it adds in like well do does playing in 20 minutes a game and hitting one or two threes make it that worth it right and, and right. yeah it's yeah i mean i do think like when he made that play at the end of the rockets game he had uh an offensive rebound right at the end but he had a very nice catch step score mm -hmm. um off a pocket pass from buddy and i think yeah, that, that was awesome that that 
actual movement was a definite improvement from what we had seen last year and at the beginning of the season. So I do think he did things. It's just, you know, how you envision how you want to play as a team collectively, what this team's identity is going to be on the defensive end of the floor, which we've talked to death, but, um, my over under then with all this in mind is three and a half and that's years with the Pacers. Ooh. Wow. Um, I'm going to take the under on that. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where I'm at as well. I mean, I guess it depends what else they're able to do this off season, but when you look at it, like if miles does return, which we both felt on the last pod seems most likely even if he doesn't sign the extension, I still think it's in the best interest of both sides for him to come back and rebuild some of his value at the beginning of the year. If Miles is back in the rotation, you already have Isaiah Jackson. Depending upon how they see him, I think he's going to be your backup center unless they think he's a four. Where is Goga playing? It's going to be you know year four of him being behind two other bigs in the rotation potentially. And it's not like you can fudge things with Goga. Like he and Ijax played 30 minutes together this year. And I wanted to see a little bit more of that just because I wanted to see what I thought of Ijax at the four, not necessarily because I believed in it as a combination, but you're not, you're probably not from what we saw of Goga and Sabonis last year, going to be playing Goga very many minutes, if at all with Miles Turner, we haven't seen it in three years. I mean, we did that on the superlatives trivia pod where they've played like 10 minutes together since Gogo was drafted. So it's like, what, what space does he occupy then at that point? And do you feel confident? I mean, what we saw over the back end of the season was very much an emphasis on them wanting to be a switching team. If that was more, I mean, we can debate what the purpose for that was. Was it because they didn't have time to implement a system? And with a bunch of young guys, it was easier to say, hey, guys, we're just going to switch everything for the remainder of this season because that's easier to implement without a lot of practice time. Or if that's really how they see what they're going to be doing, I don't see Goga fitting into that as well. And we also know that amongst the bigs, which he was dealing, I, I should have brought up before, he revealed in his exit interview that he was actually dealing with some degree of nerve damage in his foot. So clearly that would have been impacting some of the stuff that he was doing on the court. He was in and out of the lineup quite a bit, but of the four bigs, I believe he played the fewest minutes between Terry Taylor, Isaiah Jackson, Jalen and Goga. And some of that was just being out, but it always felt like when it was time for Rick Carlisle to make a choice, even in some of the games when Goga played better, like when he had his, you know, career best half against the wizards, he didn't come in and play until there was like a minute to go in the third quarter. Or we're seeing like this play I pointed out in Cleveland, where with 10 minutes into the fourth quarter, he makes this very loud, repeatable mistake that he had been making. And then he doesn't play the rest of the game and they close with Jalen instead. Um, it just seems like there's somewhat of a preference there. I won't completely rule out because they already have um, picked up his option for next year that if they're not able to you know, fill in the front court in other ways or what they envision. It's possible he could be back, but I think I would lean with you and say the under based on what we've seen. Oh, definitely. Um, All right. Well, you want to jump into Terry? Yeah, let's jump into Terry Taylor. Perfect. My one play was so easy for this one. Um, Like, and I, I mean that in the most endearing way possible. Like Terry just had similar to O'Shea, like you as, as our fans on here know, um, not that they're fans of us, just fans of the pod in general. Um, like 
we can talk about Terry and O'Shea forever, but the play for me was against the Milwaukee Bucks. It's a middle pick and roll uh, for uh, for Buddy Heald. It's kind of with a side to side action, like one of the you know chase chase actions. Um, and Terry goes to set the screen on Chris Milton, and then he automatically flips it because you can tell like Buddy's not going to get separation from it. Um, and then Buddy goes to his left. And then Terry just kind of keeps moving. Like one of my favorite things about him and like this exactly made me want to write about him. And I ended up writing about him after it. Um, like he does his damnedest to toe the exact line of legality on screening. Like he's always moving on his screens. Like I, I, it's one of the things where like, I think if I was like somebody who was less involved with the game, I'd be like, ah, how can you not call that? But it's just kind of an art how much he keeps moving to to make it look like he is not not illegally screening if that makes sense um but he uh he my point is like he literally just like shades chris middleton this entire time and like bump screens him like three or four times throughout the possession to get buddy and open to and it sounds like such a small thing but like uh, you just have to watch the clip like this man has Chris Middleton fighting for his life, trying to defend the pick and roll. And it's just, uh, it's, it's something that, that this year has really made me stand out and appreciate screening more. Like, I mean, I think you and I have been people who always appreciate screening because of watching Domas for so long, but, you know, as the season really wore on and trying to find some of the small things that really are, are cool and stand out, like the way that he opens guys up, just it's impeccable. Um, and it, it's it's just been one of my favorite things to watch. So that is my play. I mean, there's a definite intelligence to it in yeah. terms of, you know, what he does. Like I said, I pointed out in, in plays past that, like, they're playing the Kings. Davian Mitchell is making it a very big purpose to be weaking Tyrese to his left, which effectively looks like an ice on a side pick and roll. And Isaiah Jackson kind of has to thaw out from that and realize, you know, oh, okay. Like they're using push coverage. I need to change my angle. And and now Tyrese has kind of been holding in place for a while before he even gets to snake it. Sometimes with Terry, he's going to recognize what that coverage is before they even do it. And he's already going to be in a flat screen so that Tyrese can get right around. And sometimes it's easy to forget too that because he is so strong, you forget that he's the same size as Tyrese. They're both listed at six foot five. So like he's going and setting a ball screen for a light sized player. And at times, like even before Karis got traded, like they're playing the bulls and you're watching Terry Taylor set Gortat screens for Karis Levert to be able to get into the lane. Like, that's just absurd to me. I, I don't think the list of people who are doing stuff like he is at his size is very short. We're talking about like Bruce Brown, PJ Tucker, Gary Payton for the warriors. And even when I filtered all that for my freelance piece, none of them, we're doing it as efficiently as what Terry has. I mean, his is a smaller sample size because he didn't play as many minutes, but we know what he can do against a slip. He's very good at finding that pocket where right as the switch is happening, he slips out of the screen. That's another way to attack. Um, I think that his screening technique is quite good. He's smart about it. And it, it is very remarkable that like, he can set a gore taught screen on Mo Bamba and we can talk about Mo Bamba's center of gravity to a degree, but watch the difference between him doing it and Goga doing it. Um, Goga's getting like folded in half, trying to set, you know, an Aaron Bain screen and getting folded over at the waist. 
and Terry's literally walling Mo Bamba off for, you know, the ball handler to get in and finish with their left. So um, I think his strength, his core strength is pretty ridiculous. And sometimes you really do have to sit back and think like, oh yeah, he's basically the same size as Buddy Heald and Tyrese Halliburton. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, to me, I think it's not even conjecture to say that he's probably one of the 15 best screeners in the NBA. And that feels like, um, like I could narrow that down even more probably. Uh, he's just, uh, he's so good. I, I love watching him play. Um, all right. My one number is four. And do you know what that is? Four. Is that offensive rebound? What do you mean? Like per game or? I was thinking maybe he had that many in a game. I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, you're close. Um, sort of. Uh, I, I went like a little bit deep with this one. So I made it, it this. I would have been surprised if you guessed this one. He finished tied for fourth in the NBA among established qualifiers in offensive rebound percentage. Uh, yeah. Tied with Robert Williams, the third. Um, he was the shortest player in the top 25 for offensive rebound percentage in the NBA this year. And somebody else who makes the list, uh, once you get down in top 30, the only other players below 6'8 are O'Shea Brissett, Montrezl Harrell, and Jay Sean Tate. Um, but point being, like, I, I did the – I'd have to do the numbers again on StatHead, but, like, earlier this year, Terry Taylor was having, like, one of the single greatest offensive rebounding uh, seasons of, of, like, NBA history. Um, it was insane as his minutes wore down a little bit, like it, he didn't get to keep that up, unfortunately, but, um, point being like the, his ability to, to just grab and time offensive rebounds is pretty nutty. Uh, and it's not just the size thing, like the size makes it stand out more, but regardless, like he is so good at, at finding the ball. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Like saying he has a nose for the ball. It sounds so cliche, but like, it just is fitting for him. I mean, that's a definite skill. I mean, when we talked about Buddy in the last podcast, and I talked about that transition defense play, where Buddy came from the left wing over down to the right baseline when somebody shot a right corner three, like the likelihood of the ball going there is not very good. And yet Buddy left his rebounding area to go chase it. Um, the ball doesn't tend to ricochet back to corner shooters. That's been tracked by um, analytics gurus to great detail. And then they ended up giving a play the other way. Um, Terry tracks the fly to the ball and has a very good sense for that. And he's also very broad. And he also has a very ridiculously long wingspan. Because I mentioned in my freelance piece, I mean, he has a longer wingspan than Sabonis does. So when he goes up and does that, in addition to having the broad, the broad body, the wingspan, he has good footwork. And he really understands angles similarly to what Domas does in those situations because like I think sometimes we think putbacks are really easy shots but when you're Terry Taylor and you're getting offensive rebounds around Nikola Jokic who has improved defensively this season and you're having to wiggle to create space with your feet and you basically shoot a reverse mic and drill layup um, that takes skill that's not just you catching the ball and powering it back up because if he had done that undoubtedly Jokic probably would have blocked him because you know that's a mountainous body you're having to power up and through and he had the sense to bring it down get to the other side of the rim get to his strong hand and use the rim as rim protection so again it goes back to um his overall instincts as a basketball player his intelligence and then what um his wingspan and his overall body type allows him to do but again it, it's just it's hard not to sit back because like 
they were in Memphis and as garbage as those two Memphis games were, you're literally in the fourth quarter when Lance had made four threes and Lance comes off a double drag and deliberately throws the ball up off the left side of the glass with that much confidence that Terry Taylor is going to get a rebound. It was a Kobe assist, like completely all the way. Like you can tell it wasn't just Lance botching the layup. He knew like carries the role, man, which again is another thing to sit back and think about. Terry and Goga are both on the floor at the same time. And Terry is the person positioned to roll to the basket and they throw it up there and Terry gets it and ends up getting fouled. So the confidence paid off, but um, yeah, very fun to see what he did as an undrafted player, especially that the Pacers located him and hit on the fringes with somebody that looks like they can continue to grow. Um, I don't know if you had, you were going to talk about any of his shortcomings or what you have for the over under. So. No, I mean like the only, it's hard to even say shortcomings with him. Like I, I don't hate his defense. Is that a fair way to put it? Like, I think that his defense is like, like you mentioned earlier, like he can be fine tagging the roller. I think he's shown a little bit of switchability, although I'd like him to be even more active on those switches. Um, And he can do some stuff guarding in the post too. But um, it is just like, I don't know. I think every time I've tried to analyze the defense on this team, it's just like hard to take into account. Like a, some of the times it just, what they're doing it just doesn't always make sense for personnel on the roster. Um, the defensive apathy overall just makes it more difficult to um, kind of understand what what to think. And um, I, I mean, I think overall I'd call him an average defender. Do you think that would be fair? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very hard to parse out because, like I said, anytime that I mean, maybe I was apathetic in my willingness to. <laughs> write a piece completely describing what the issues were on that floor because they're so pervasive that it's hard to separate anything out and say like, you know, here's the main problem or to really judge some of these people as individual defenders when you have so many collective team issues. But um, I think the main thing for Terry offensively is going to be what we've said in prior podcasts. Like I think he can grow as a corner shooter. I don't think that that's all lost. It was Rocky. And some of the games towards the back end where, you know, they're in Boston and a couple times he had opportunities to put the ball on the floor as a keeper. And he kept looking for ways to kind of get rid of it when he was in the corner. Um, Didn't shoot the ball that well. I think the last game against Brooklyn, I don't remember. After he hit like three corner threes in one game, then he had a bit of a slide. I didn't do Terry, so I don't have those numbers in front of me. But um, sometimes I do question why he's in the corner, I will say. Um, Not because I think he has to be involved as the screener all the time, but I do think that there are some benefits to just putting him in the dunker spot. Yeah. And that might seem counterintuitive to the overall spacing and what the Pacers do, but it can actually make the gap wider if he's in the dunker spot, because then, you know, people are, you're helping from the slot and the wing to pinch in on, you know, a Tyrese drive versus, you know, you have five people stationed there and you're pinching in closer to make that kick out, which I mean, Tyrese is a good enough passer that I don't think that matters quite as much as it did when it was Karras, but you know, then he's right there for offensive rebounds. He's good at manufacturing angles out of there. So that's in part why I'm not quite as concerned about the three point rate. Cause yeah. I mean, let's face it. If Terry comes back next year and actually makes the roster, he's not going to be playing as many minutes as he was this year. I wouldn't think yeah. so like just putting him in there in spots and letting him lean more into what he's good at. I don't think it's that big of a deal, but um, 
there, there was rockiness that we have to address from definitely. the shooting perspective. So here's my thing. I agree with you entirely. Like, I think that I would so much rather see him in the dunker spot, especially because like you mentioned, like he's really good at making himself available in space. Like he floats really well in the paint to get himself open. He has good touch. He's shown it on, on floaters and push shots. Um, but I just like, and I, I don't want to say that it's unfair for me without being in the, in the, you know, coaching meetings and stuff. It's unfair for me to say, like, I don't think Rick's willing to put him in those positions, but I just don't know that Rick's going to be willing to put him in those positions. Like it, like he is so determined to go five out and I get it. Like everything has its merits, but again, like when you have Terry on the floor, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to have him in the corner. Like you're saying, like, I think there is a lot more viability to having him just there in the dunker spot. And it, I think his gravity, like, the, I mean, he doesn't really have gravity. Like, I think part of the thing is he's really good at playing off of others' gravity, and he can't really do that when he's in the corner. So um, I, I, I'm there with you. That's, but that would you say that's a valid concern? Just because I, I do question how willing he is going to be to, to just put him in some of those positions. I mean, it's interesting because when he first started playing, like in that OKC game, when Isaiah Jackson didn't play. They they had Terry in the dunker spot because mm-hmm. I wrote about like you know, here's how these three rookies all made strides and showed what the spacing looked like with Terry um, sitting there and how it made it easier for Karish to drive in versus you know having a shooter that nobody's guarding just standing in in the three point area. Like yes, it looks more congested, but it's actually giving you some more options in certain ways. And I don't think you do this universally. Like I'm not saying that I think the Pacers need to run four out one in a hundred percent of the time. And in a lot of cases when they are playing quote unquote five out, like it will be, you know, Goga screen sets a Ram screen for Terry to then go screen into a double drag for the ball. And now, you know, one of them rolls and one of them pops. Like it's not necessarily just Terry standing off in the corner, but I do think the concern is somewhat valid because you know, looking back at it in retrospect, if we just look at how he used Sabonis and not that Sabonis was ever really going to be doing a lot of not being involved in the offense, like let's face it, he wasn't really standing other than preseason when I wrote about like, why is he in the corner? He wasn't going to be doing a lot of standing just in the dunker spot or in the corner to begin with, because ideally, you know, he's going to be making reads either out of triangle or from the elbows or constantly facilitating and screening. But just looking at how they used him and how long it took them to adjust and let him do those types of things. I I think that there is some. Especially if, you know, he's not going to be out there. Like I said, it's not like you're going to be making this overall massive adjustment to your offense. It's just going to be in a spot role when, when he's on the floor. So um, I think there's some valid use to using him more like what Thad was used like at times um, so that you're not just always spacing Thad out to three where nobody's going to guard him. But it's possible that Terry could still develop that. I mean, he shot the ball okay in the G League. He did shoot 34% from the corners, but that was only on 26 attempts between, I think, yeah, with the Pacers. So um, it's not horrible. It just, it doesn't look like, there's a lot of consistency there and there seems like there's a little bit of reluctance from him to actually do it. So I don't know. We'll see moving forward, but what's your one under on over under? Yeah. My, my number is nine and that's rotation spot next year. Wow. That's a tough one. 
Yeah, I originally had eight, and I was like, no, nah, that's going to be too high probably. But nine felt about right. Well, let's just work this out in our heads here because I'm trying to – I mean, who's even on the roster next year? a great year? question. Um, I mean, we know that Brogdon's ahead of him. That's one. Tyrese, that's two. If Buddy's back, that's three. Miles, that's four. Um, Duarte, that's five. I think Ijax, that's six. Um, O'Shea, maybe that's seven. Who am I missing? Um, pull up the roster. That's probably not a bad idea. I mean, whoever gets drafted, theoretically. Yeah, the draft they, pick, you know. that's eight. Then there would still be Dwayne, potentially. I mean, they don't play the same spot. Yeah. Um, I guess it would probably come down to, I mean, who they see as the starting four is really going to hinge here because yeah. if if you have Miles and Ijax and they're going to be your centers, you know, is O'Shea the starting oh, so we four? See, we can even say TJ. But well, I guess that's you know TBD oh, TJ McConnell, TJ, TJ McConnell, uh, and TJ Warren. Yeah. Oh um, yeah. Double so. TBD. Um, yeah. So I guess ah, this one's tough. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's almost going to be a choice between what you said to begin with. It's not going to be five O'Shea's or five Terry's, but it might be a choice at backup four between O'Shea and Terry. Um, and in part maybe O'Shea plays some at the three I and mean, we saw quite a bit of that down the stretch. So it might not be one for one, but um, I, at the very least, I don't know if Terry's going to have a consistent rotation spot because I don't know what the rest of the roster is going to be, but I do at the very least hope that he makes the roster yeah, that he too. gets past the guaranteed date in his back. So you can continue to evaluate what he does and, and have him in your pipeline for whatever improvements he may make over the summer. So I'll say that. Yeah. No, I'm there with you too. Um, he deserves it. I would really like to see it happen. Um, but yeah, I think that closes us out. Do you have anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here? I haven't done Jalen yet. Oh my gosh. I completely forgot about that. I'm so sorry. All right, let's go ahead with Jalen. Jalen. So my pick for Jalen, I struggled again with what I was going to pick. I almost wanted to go straight defense for all of this, but I felt like since we already talked about Goga and I did make vague reference to um, the fact that when they did take Goga out of that game against the Cavs, Garland then started going at Jalen pretty heavily and switches and they scored not just on Jalen, but like getting advantages from that, I believe on eight possessions in a row until the Pacers ended up needing to double him. So that's a reality, but I didn't actually pick that as my clip. What I picked as my clip is these are minutes with Jalen and Isaiah Jackson on the floor together in Detroit. and. Um, Tyrese, there's already been a pick and roll with Isaiah Jackson. So Corey Joseph's defending Ijax and Isaiah Stewart's out on the perimeter against Tyrese and buddy then sets a screen to, um, get some hesitation there so that Tyrese can make a move. And he swings it to Jalen in the corner because Corey was fronting Isaiah Jackson. And then when Corey rotates out of that, he's closing out hard to Jalen um, right at, at the, where the break's going to happen on the three point line. So basically what I'm describing to you is Jalen has the potential to attack a closeout against a guard on the right side of the floor. So he has to put the ball down on the floor with his left and Kate Cunningham comes to, uh, stunt or dig on Jalen's drive off of Tyrese, which you don't see a lot, but maybe he was thinking because of the size advantage he needed to, 
and Jalen picks up his dribble at that point off the stunt and already goes into his motion against Corey doesn't get square and hits all glass on the, on the catch and drive. So the overall way I would title this is catch and drive against smaller defenders, because if Jalen were to be back, which we'll get into that later, but let's just hypothetically say that he is, and you have miles. And in this case, like what we're seeing Isaiah Jackson playing at the five, Jalen's going to be getting, if he gets minutes in a rotation spot at the four. So I think you're going to be seeing him a lot more in the corner like this. And potentially, you know, if he does shoot the three reasonably well, seeing some closeouts like this. And I just, I feel like this decision-making is a little bit, it's somewhat muddled. And it also speaks to what I've noticed of him when he does put the ball on the court um, against quicker defenders, be they guards or forwards that he's somewhat of a stiff driver. He's not very fluid. And sometimes it can take him a little bit to get to his rip through move and put the ball on the floor. And because he's so upright, then it ends up being finishes like this when he gets to the basket, unless he's out there against a bigger player and can just get there quickly with no backline defense. But that isn't the case here. And he's not just going to beat Corey Joseph off the drive. So I think what you would preferably see here is when Cade Cunningham comes to stunt, he would just immediately make the kick out back to Tyrese. And if he doesn't, then you would recognize, okay, I, I have a smaller defender on me and I'm going to go into a little bit more of a methodical back down after I've taken these first two dribbles to get Corey buried under the basket and go that way instead of, you know, allowing Corey to essentially bump you off your spot at the rim after you've already picked up your dribble. So um, where are you at with his overall face-up game or attacking closeouts and um what else you'd see if he would return as a four? I think it just has to be quicker. Um, like you can just tell when he he holds the ball a little bit um, and he, it, it feels like either he's premeditating decisions at times or he has to think before he does something like that. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like I said, I think it's somewhat just an overall he's just somewhat of a stiff driver. I think that yeah. he could be quicker with the rip for the move here. Here he's not so quick and reacting to Corey closing out as it's like, okay, you're a center attacking a guard off the dribble. When, like I'm saying, I think the better decision there would be to recognize who's actually defending you. And when you see the stunt go into a, the back down and go that way, instead of trying to, you know, beat him with a, what's going to end up being a wide angle drive. Um, the corner shooting is interesting because I looked up what all of these people shot from the corners this year, if I can find my paper. Oh, here it is. And he shot 26.9% on corner threes compared to 42% above the break. And typically that's fairly uncommon, but it also yeah. applies to miles. Miles shot slightly better, 33% above the break, 31% from the corners. Um, but Terry and O'Shea both shot better, which is more common from the corners than above the break. So that brings into question a little bit, like if Jalen were back and like, let's say he was playing minutes with miles, how they would be able to occupy that same space where he's clearly more comfortable as a shooter to this point. I mean, the corners not very high volume, but to be fair, it's not really that high of volume for miles either in part because he didn't play a lot of games this season, but 
Like, I guess you could make the argument that if they're both out there and it's a two man screening action, that maybe miles will get to be the role man and you could pop Jalen and then you're still getting above the break three, but they're not going to run that all the time. He's going to be in the corner and that part of his game hasn't necessarily been there. He didn't shoot it well with Phoenix necessarily either on low volume again. And then, you know, what else can it be? Like how is he just going to have to pass out of a closeout? Because I mean, he didn't see, I mean, that's in part, part of this too. Like he only saw closeouts on 20% of his threes. And aside from February, when he first got traded to the Pacers, when he shot 41.2% from the three point line, um, the other months he didn't shoot better than 33. So there was somewhat of like, kind of like what we were talking about with buddy when he first got traded to the Kings and he first got traded here that there was a little bit of an initial bump and then some of that fell back down. So um, I don't know what your thoughts are about that. It's interesting when you look at the numbers because the Pacers, he played more minutes at the five ultimately than he did at the four. When he was out there with Jay, with Isaiah Jackson, the Pacers were plus 9.8, but it's only 93 minutes. When he was out there with Goga, they were plus 1.3 in only 98 minutes. And then when he was out there at solo five, they got outscored by 5.9 per 100 in 350 minutes. So just looking at that alone without the other context, that would kind of lead you to believe that at the very least, and this is what was interesting before when I was talking about Goga, a lot of their defensive ratings this season shaked out better when they had more than one big on the floor, as counterintuitive as that may sound. And it then makes me ask questions if that has to do somewhat with what they were doing schematically that when you think about it for how much of the season they spent initially, like it doesn't really make sense to be hedging with two centers, but that they didn't have a lot of other size on the floor. So if they were hedging, then at least you had somebody as a low man who could still step up and provide greater length there. And then also if they were switching, the big was out at the perimeter, which means they had no rim protector a lot of the time, like what I described with Goga earlier. If he gets roasted by D'Angelo Russell or Jalen Smith gets beat by Darius Garland, there's no one back there to protect unless they were playing another bigger player on the floor. So um, I guess I should say the defense was never particularly, you know, good in any of these arrangements, but the fact that they were able to outscore their opponents in some of those settings is, is curious, not because I think that's actually like necessarily a valid track to making their defense better, but that because, because of what they were doing schematically, it might've actually helped to have more big bodies on the floor because of what some of the shortcomings were there. But um, my one number then goes into this. I just picked 26.9% and whether you actually think that he'll make some strides as a, a corner three shooter. And if that at all shapes what, in contrast to what we just said about Terry, if he doesn't improve his rate as a, as a corner three-point shooter, does that shape the way that you view him fitting on this roster? Good question. Um, I, I'd like to think he'll be better at it, which, again, I'm being optimistic. Um, just to go back on the defense a little bit, I do uh, – part of what makes it interesting is, like, if they really do see themselves as more of a switch team, which it seems like that's what they want to go in the direction in, again, we as we've talked about, Gonna need some major roster re- reworking if that's the if that's the idea ide- ideology there. But he has shown some real like not consistently, but he has shown the flashes of switchability that are interesting. Um, so that's worth noting for sure. Um, as for the like, we we talked about this too. I do think like he showed some stuff like cutting baseline and 
um, making a couple plays after driving baseline that were interesting. But again, it's going to require the actual closeouts. Um, I'd like, I think that he'll shoot better from the corners just because it feels impossible not to. Um, is that fair? Yeah, I think my thing with the switching is somewhat that I felt so much of the time and maybe maybe in some instances it was them just wanting to overhelp. Yeah. But, you know, the one play when Darius got him out on a switch, O'Shea comes all the way over before they had started deciding that they were going to, you know, switch to blitz or, or hard double him. And he's coming over to help because you can tell people just don't necessarily really trust it. And then it just becomes an easy kick out three, which, I mean, you can make the argument of, okay, why wasn't buddy up, you know, effectively helping and, and helping the helper to stun up and, and contest that shot. So that oh, it's not just a, a long closeout from O'Shea. Those are all valid questions and why it's difficult to talk about the defense. Cause at any one time you can see multiple problems on the same play. Um, I certainly trust him more to switch than I do Goga, but I can think of a lot of plays in my head where like they're switching him out against Anthony Edwards against the Timberwolves and he's having to play back to account for and speed. And now he's just hitting step back threes against him or late in the game against the magic. Terrence Ross makes a big three. And then after that, when they came out of the timeout, they ended up playing drop with Isaiah Jackson to try to um, mitigate what they were giving up with switches. The Darius Garland one certainly stands out. Um, some of what they had to end up doing against Shea Gilgis Alexander, where they had to hard double him. And like, I realized that Darius Garland and Shea Gilgis are also just very good players and the Pacers defense was what it was. I don't know that I firmly think that that's going to be a solution. Um, though I do think something that I also noodle around sometimes is like when they're up in Portland before the trade deadline and Portland was, you know, CJ McCollum was kind of hunting Sabonis and miles, depending upon which one of them was out there. One of the benefits to having them both out there was, okay, well, they're going to, if, if both of them are there, they're going to view Sabonis as the weaker isolation defender and CJ is going to hunt him. And if he beats Sabonis out on the perimeter, you still have miles at the rim. Like if Sabonis isn't out there, he's going to hunt miles and then he's going to bring miles into space and, and who's protecting against it once miles is out there. So that, that's kind of what I was just thinking with some of the ability and spots to have more than one player. I mean, and some of that goes back to, it doesn't have to be a big as a weak side rim protector. They just need to find somebody who can do that. And maybe, you know, that becomes Isaiah Jackson if they allow him to play more at the four and, you know, move sideline to sideline on lower usage wings and he can provide some of that. But um, anyways, my one over under then um, is 4.7 which is just the amount of the option that was declined by the Phoenix Suns and the fact that the Pacers can't offer him more than that in free agency. So um, do you think he's going to get offered more than that in free agency? And, and that, do you think he will still be on this team next year? Uh, after Miles' comment, um, not that that should mean everything, but like the one that he had in exit interviews talking about how, you know, um, I don't want to misquote him, but just like talking about how he, he thinks, you know, Jalen just needs to go out and get his money. Um, that's, oh, sorry. That was a bad representation. Like he, he meant it in like the kindest way possible. Like, you know, yeah. this league's all about, you know, making as much money as you can and being able to set yourself up. And I think I, I know uh, you had that really good pie with Daniel LaRue and he, he, he's not sure that somebody will pay him more. 
I just feel like at least one team is going to buy into it because the big market in free agency is not that massive. Um, like, I, I just I, and then I, I I bet that there's at least one team out there who is going to convince themselves that they're they're in on his flashes and what he's shown in Indiana, um, and his his time in Phoenix as well earlier this year when he put some things together and in that stretch when uh, DeAndre Ayton was injured. Um, I'm going to go on the over with this. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Jalen had a quote where he said, this is a huge off season and a scary off season. Obviously as a young player, you don't want to make the wrong decision. This off season is going to come down to a lot of things. Um, and then he talked about wanting to spend a lot of time talking with his family about what they were going to want to do. Um, yeah. When I was on that podcast, Danny's main point was that there's not going to be that many teams that have the taxpayer mid-level, which is just above this number 5.9 million. There's not going to be a lot of teams that have that available to them. And would they want to spend it on Jalen is another question. And he talked about, you know, like the instance of Cork Maz, he had his option declined and he ultimately went back to the Sixers because he thought there was going to be opportunity there. And that a lot of times this can come down to at least in that first year, like, yes, another team would be able to high, to offer him a higher starting point, but there's also the potential that like, and this is totally me just saying a hypothetical. If he thought that like, you know, Oh, well they moved miles Turner at the draft or, you know, th- th- he has some inclination to believe that there's going to be playing time for him. Like, Oh, well we see you as like a th- the third big in the rotation and we're going to play you a lot of minutes at the four potentially. Again, this is all just me speaking hypothetically. And he saw that opportunity then. Yeah. You might not get paid more than 4.7 million for the next season, but if you have that bigger opportunity and you can prove out that like, look, I'm ready to earn a big paid. Uh, upgrade after one season, it might be a higher dollar amount for you in the long run to do like, you know, a one plus one with a player option. And then, you know, the Pacers would have his bird rights at that point and they could re-sign him to a higher dollar amount. Like that was the overall um, point that Danny was making that it might not just be about first year money. It might be about what team's going to offer him the best opportunity so he can earn more money on the next contract versus like, you know, maybe some other team is like, Oh, like, I don't remember which one said that we're interested in maybe if the Pacers were willing to flip him at the deadline that, you know, they might want him for like, you know, fringe backup depth. If he's not going to get minutes on that next team, then when he gets back into free agency, maybe he's, you know, not positioned as well as if he stayed with the Pacers. And and that's that's all hypothetical because if, if Miles is back and Isaiah is your backup five and you still like O'Shea and who knows what's going on with TJ Warren, then you know those minutes not may not be with the Pacers either. But I it seems very more likely that he probably won't be on the team just because of what the contract restraints are. But I will say just for me and what I've seen. I would feel better about him being back on the team than Goga. Like if it was just a choice, like everything was equal and you were just making a choice between one or the other, I would lean toward Jalen simply because of what we've said. He has shown some flashes and all of these things that you're not playing Goga at the four. Like Goga, if you were back, is going to be most likely your third string center. Whereas Jalen, like, yeah, if Miles or, or Isaiah Jackson gets hurt, he could step in and play the five for you. We've seen that. Or if you just want him to provide some rotation minutes at the four, we've also seen that. So 
Um, I just think he gives you a little bit more versatility, which is the same thing you can say with Terry Taylor and O'Shea in this podcast. Like there's just, there's more things that you can do with each of them. Whereas we very much know that while I do think that Goga made some strides, he needs to play the five and I'm not really seeing an area for him to do that aside for the same role that he's had since he's been drafted. Yeah, no, I think all those points are great. Um, and I, I agree. I think the biggest thing I just want Jalen to do whatever's best for him, you know, and right. I don't, I don't hundred percent otherwise, but yeah. Um, I would, yeah, I would be very content with him being back next year. Like I, I definitely am in on who he could be as a player. Um, it's just going to all be about opportunity for him and, especially team direction and where they're trying to go, um, which is just what makes every like, as we've talked about the front court so many times, it just is so odd. Like, I don't know what to think about where they're going, but um, hopefully we and they get some more clarity this off season. Yeah, I agree. Tough to tough to break down people when you don't exactly know how the team themselves envisions various players on the roster and maybe, like, I think that they should have a pretty good sense of what they have in each of these guys after what we've seen, but without me knowing how they, how they view them, like what we've said with Isaiah Jackson for a long time without knowing, um, and position isn't everything, but without knowing if they think that he could play the four next year, it's tough to know what other rotation spots will be available and what minutes will be available to, to fully evaluate it on our end. But Can I just um, say something else too? Um, yeah. If they took Ajax without thinking he could play the four. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like. I mean, to they clearly that. did because they said yeah. last summer they thought he could. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think defensively he can play the four and I think yeah, that it would definitely. be to his benefit. But I'm going to need to see more offensively for for me to think that unless Miles is willing to continue on doing what he's been doing, but we'll see. We're still an Isaiah Jackson pod to get to where we can break down all those delightful topics, but, um, and all seriously, no, that, that should be a pleasant pod talking about him and Chris and Tyrese when we get to that one. Not a doubt. Well, Caitlin, this was fun. To everyone listening. Thank you for listening. This one's a little bit shorter than our last one. Barely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was still fun though. Um, if you haven't already, be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. Hit us up over at Indie Cornrows as well or on Twitter. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day. And thank you for listening.